Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. When you say the name of his most famous character, you can't help but smile. Jeff Bridges is a versatile and philosophical actor, one who audiences affectionately think of as the dude from The Big Lebowski. Jeff got an early start to his career. His father, the legendary actor Lloyd Bridges, loved show business and encouraged Jeff to act alongside him on television when Jeff was just a kid. Since then, Jeff has been nominated for six Academy Awards. The first was for The Last Picture Show. He was just 22 years old, and it was his first major role. In 2010, he won the Oscar for his role as a country singer in Crazy Heart. He shines in his ability to play a wide range of characters. And always at the center of Jeff's emotional performances is his shaggy charm. Maybe that's why he's so identified with his role as the dude. Jeff embraces a zen-like appreciation of life. He's naturally curious and tunes into what he loves or digs, as he says, whether it's his artistic passions or his beautiful wife and family. Everybody has a story and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Jeff Bridges. It's funny, you know, we, uh, we kind of become our parents in a certain way, I think. You know, that's our touchstone. That's, that's who we know, kind of. And I certainly went into my father's business, always felt very connected with him. So when I was about, uh, you know, seven or eight, I remember my dad uh, saying, hey, Jeff, do you want to come play with dad? You know, well, what do you mean play? Sure. What do you, what do, you do? What do you want to do? He says, well, come and do, do a sea hunt with me, you know, my show. I said, what? what do you mean? He says, yeah, it'll be fun. Come on. I said, well, I got school and everything. He says, well, you get to get out of school, you know. Come on, let's play. And so uh, he would always encourage all his kids to get into showbiz. He loved it so much. And whenever there was a part in his movies for a kid or his TV shows, uh, he would always, you know, put us up for it. I mean, I, I think I am a product of nepotism. I don't think I would have had the profession that I'm in currently, you know, acting, if it wasn't for my dad. He was my acting teacher. He taught me how to act, told me all the basics about how to, you know, make it seem like it's happening for the first time and, you know, do it different ways and all this kind of thing. But I think the thing I learned from him most, uh, it wasn't something he said to me in words, it was just observing him and noticing how much fun he was having and how much he enjoyed what he was doing. 
looking back, I did experience it in the early sea hunt days, but I, I remember it most, I think, when I got to work with him in two movies while I was a, an adult in Tucker and Blown Away, these two movies. And I remember him coming on the set and he was just filled with joy. And I noticed how that affected everyone, you know, and everyone just got lighter and more relaxed. And I find when, when I'm relaxed, then my best stuff can kind of get through all my tightness and my fears and stuff. And it just kind of flows out. That's probably the biggest thing I learned from my father is his approach uh, to life and work was so joyous. I, I try to, you know, follow his footsteps with that. I remember early on, I had uh, some difficulty trying to figure out whether I wanted to take that acting path or not. And uh, I actually had quite a bit of success. I was nominated for an Academy Award for Last Picture Show and did a couple of movies after that. And I was still wondering if this is what I was going to do, be a professional actor. There was a lot of fear behind it. And um, I get a call from my agent. He says, I've got great news. John Frankenheimer, the great director, wants to hire you to be in The Iceman Cometh, or the movie version. It's going to have Frederick March, Robert Ryan, Lee Marvin is going to be in it. Wonderful cast. And I said, oh, gee, Jack, you know, I'm, I'm bushed, man. I'm just, I'm going to take a pass. Uh, tell him thanks a lot, but I'm going to pass on. He said, really? I said, yeah, okay. And about five minutes later, Lamont Johnson, the director who I had just worked with on Last American Hero, he called me up in his low voice and he said, yeah, I've heard you turned down uh, the opportunity to uh, play uh, in The Iceman Cometh. I said, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm bushed, uh, Lamont. He says, you're bushed. You're an ass. He, he hung up on me. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. I really don't want to make any movies right now. But maybe this is a chance for me to explore the idea of uh, becoming a professional actor. I understand when you're a professional, you've got to do it when you don't feel like it. I certainly don't feel like it. So let me just jump into this, and maybe this will be the final nail in the coffin of the acting career. So I said, okay, I'm doing it. And Robert Ryan, most of my scenes were with him, and I'm a big fan of Robert Ryan. We had these uh, long scenes that were uh, about 10 minutes long. We were about to do one, and we were at a table there sitting opposite each other, and, and Bob took his hands off the table, his hands on his lap, and I noticed these big puddles of sweat where his hands had been. I said, gee, Bob, after all these years, you're still, you're still nervous. He said, oh, yeah, I'd really be scared if I wasn't scared. I said, God. So that's not something that you uh, you get rid of. You know, I thought you know the more you do it, you finally get over that stuff. But to think that it never goes away, seeing these old pros, you know, guys who have been doing it for you know fifty, sixty years, how they dealt with all the same stuff I felt with all that fear and that flop sweat. I said maybe I can do this acting thing after all. I remember being a younger kid and having the fear of the dark, what's out there, what's under the bed, what's going to happen. Then as you get older, you just say, you know, you kind of poo-poo that fear and you say, just concentrate on where you're going. Everything's fine. Just, you know, but there are times when it doesn't go away. It's just amazing, the mind, the power of the mind and uh, these stories that we can tell ourselves 
that aren't necessarily true. Again, it's, um, it's these opinions that we can make very concrete. And that can be very unlovely, or it can be kind of chances to grow and uh, to open and let it dance with that funny feeling. There's a chance for that to be a wonderful gift. A lot of men have fear of marriage, right? I met my wife nearly 40 years ago. I was making a movie in Montana called Rancho Deluxe, and we were shooting a scene in a place called Chico Hot Springs outside of Livingston, Montana, in a beautiful place called Paradise Valley. We were sitting there doing this scene, and I can't stop looking at this gorgeous... I didn't know if she was a guest at the hotel, a waitress, a maid, or I couldn't figure out what she was. She had two black eyes and a broken nose, too, and I just couldn't take my eyes off her. And you know that thing that the guys do where they, you know, you have got a magazine or something up there, and then you, you know, use that as kind of a shield to, you know, steal. She would bust me every time, you know. But finally, I get the guts to go ask her out. I said, would you like to go out tonight, you know? No. Oh, yeah, it's a small town. You know, maybe I'll see you around, she says. I say, oh, okay. A few nights later, I'm in a bar, and sure enough, there she is, and we danced. That was about it, man. I mean, I was head over over heels the first time I saw her, you know. We've been married about 10 years, and I get a letter from the makeup man of uh, Rancho Deluxe, this movie I met Sue on. And I open it up, and he says... uh, I was going through my files, and I came upon this uh, shot I took of you asking a local girl out. I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And then out of this envelope falls these two pictures of the first words I ever spoke to my wife. I have them in my pocket. They're my prized possession. To have pictures, what are the odds of that? We lived together for about, you know, three years, and I had a very tough time pulling the uh, marriage thing, you know, ask her to marry me. Really a tough time with that. Well, that, that word uh, ambivalence, that really, uh, that's something that I can relate to uh, often in my life. I feel often uh, a mixture of, of feelings, you know. And to me, I have this theory, uh, I don't know if it holds water or not. Again, it's just my opinion, man, but uh, that the fear of marriage is really the fear of death. This is the woman that's going to be my woman for the rest of my life. It's closing a lot of doors, you know, and, and uh, if death is the, uh, you know, kind of the end of the story, that marriage is a giant step in that direction. We were living in uh, Malibu at the time. Sue, you know, came to me one day and said, I know about your ambivalence, but uh, I'm going back up to Montana because I feel my uh, clock going off. I want to get married and have kids and stuff. And, I can feel, I know you love me, as I know it's not that, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm just letting you know. And it was no pressure. She's just telling me what she was going to do. And then I thought, I said, oh, God, I can't let this uh, woman go. You know, I had this vision of me as an old guy thinking, yeah, God, there was that girl from Montana, man. Why did I marry? You know, I couldn't let that, you know, I'm pictured like a handful of sand and there was a little diamond in there. I'm letting it go. I, I can't do that. So I got down on my knees, so you marry me. And she says, okay, when? I said, well, how about Thursday? Today's Monday, how about Thursday? <laughs> she says, well, what about Friday? I said, oh, okay, well, oh, oh, Saturday, what about Saturday? Okay, so we just, we called up our friends, they came and we got married. 
Finally, I got with the program and realized how wonderful marriage is and what a great opportunity. What marriage gives you is a, you open a doorway to the marriage hall and it's, it's a hall filled with all these doors, you know, on either side, you know, with kids and, you know, all kinds of emotions that you'd never experience if you weren't married. You know, joy and fear and all that stuff. You're going to feel all those things in the marriage, but the context of it, saying we're going to do this together. We're going to learn and experience all kinds of joyful things and sorrowful things, but we're going to do it together. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. What is impressive about Jeff's family isn't that they're a Hollywood dynasty, but that they found joy in working together. Jeff has appeared on the big screen with his brother, Bo, and his father, Lloyd, and his mother, Dorothy. While Dorothy may not be as well-known as the rest of the family, she played a starring role in Jeff's life. She gave him one of the greatest gifts a mother can give, time. Before I, I was even conceived, my uh, parents had a child, uh, Gary, who died the first year of his life from SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So that was um, sort of the mood that I was brought into. My parents were going through that uh, terrible tragedy. So it was kind of frightening for them to invest that much love again. But my mom was up for it. That's me and my mom. <laughs> I'll just tell you about some of the different things that were, were remarkable about my mom. Every day, uh, she would uh, write in this journal. And when each of her children turned 21, each of us was giving a biography of our lives from our mother's point of view in her own hand. <laughs> so she would go through her journal, and every time my name was mentioned, she would transcribe that and gave that to each of us. So it's wild to read my life from my mom's point of view. It's a good example. She used to do something um, called time with each of us kids. And what that was, was every day for an hour, I could count on my mom uh, having time with me. And what that meant, that uh, she wouldn't take any calls from her friends. If her friends called, she said, no, I'll have to call you back. I'm having time with Jeff. And uh, time would be, you know, anything that I wanted to do with her. Let's go into your makeup, uh, and I want to make you up like a clown, you know. You're the uh, an astronaut under this table, and I'm the monster from space, you know. But it was just totally focused on whatever I wanted to do, and I never got the sense of it was like a duty or a chore for her. She genuinely dug having uh, time with each of her kids so much. We had such a wonderful relationship. Many, many years ago, I was watching TV, it was one of these interview shows, and they were interviewing a couple of doctors talking about rebirthing. And I had never heard about rebirthing. Kind of fascinating. And they were saying basically the way uh, people dealt with their birth, which is um, sort of the uh, our first problem, you know, getting out of there. <laughs> 
uh, is our same strategy for approaching all of our challenges in life. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. So my mom and I, you know, we're very close. And I said, so mom, I, you know, I told her about this rebirthing thing. I saw, and I said, so tell me, what was the birth like? You know, and so we sat very close to each other and she proceeded me to tell me the story. And she's driving to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, I turned and uh, this big, you know, convulsion in my mom's womb. They get to the hospital, they get right in there. And it was in the days where they used to strap the women down on these metal tables and then shoot them up, give them a big spinal. And she said, uh, then they gave me the spinal and uh, I had a terrible reaction to the spinal. And the doctor came in, was very, very concerned and started to slap my mom across the face saying, wake up, Dorothy, wake up. Uh, And my mom was trying to struggle, but she was also drugged. So the doctor perceived that she wanted to sit up and he undid the straps and sat her up and, oh, here it comes, the baby's coming and boom, and I came out. And that's basically how I was born. Now, listening to these, uh, these doctors who were talking about rebirthing, they said, now the next thing you do is you take that birth story that you've learned from your mom and you superimpose that over your first memory of pain or struggle or challenge in your life or sadness or, you know, some kind of turmoil going on. And I thought, well, the first thing that I can remember is I was about, oh, maybe three or four years old, standing in my living room, waiting for my mom to come home. And uh, my mom used to have long hair down to her waist, you know, just beautiful. And I loved to, you know, be in her hair and so forth. And I hear the door open. I'm very excited. And she opens the door and there she is. And all of her hair has been shorn off. And she's just kind of a pixie cut. And I went, ah, you know, and I ran and locked myself in the bathroom. Now the next assignment for this rebirthing thing is, you have, now you put that over how you deal with problems in your life. And sure enough, when I do that, that's me just turning around, you know, just saying, forget this. This is terrible. I'm out of here. And I just say, screw it, you know. Let's go bowling, man, you know. Basically, just say no. Like, as much as I uh, I uh, hated uh, this uh, birthing process, being born and say, oh, I don't want to come out and go, out. man, I'm glad I, that happened. I'm glad to be alive. And to live in that, that wonder and that space, it can be frightening, but it's also, wow. Well, it's the only game in town, that's for sure, but it can be absolutely joyous and wonderful. When uh, I was doing The Big Lebowski, I thought about how the dude might bowl. So Steve Buscemi and John Goodman and myself, we met with this uh, expert, and he was a you know, world-class bowler, and he had an assistant with him who was also an incredible bowler, and he's teaching us you know, how to bowl and so forth. And then I asked him, I said, well, what might be an interesting thing for the dude, you know, when he's preparing to bowl, you know, he would take so much time to make sure that his uh, body was in tune with the universe and it would take a long time. You know, your mindset has to be, so maybe the dude would be into that. And as I'm describing this, the assistant of this world-class bowler starts to laugh like that. He can't control himself. I said, what do you, what's up? He says, nothing, nothing, nothing. I said, come on, guys, what's going on? And uh, the master bowler says, um, well, it is, it's true that you're so connected with the moment and what's in it. 
that if that moment isn't right, then those pins aren't going down. So the moment has to be right. And uh, I would take a lot of time. I'm talking as the mat, the bowling master. And I says, and I would take a lot of time. And the assistant said, yeah, a long time. I said, how long? He said, oh, maybe five or 10 minutes, you know. He says, it was hell during a tournament. Being up there and all, the guys on the, on the bench would finally say, throw the ball, you know. He says, I, I had to go to a, a therapist, you know, a shrink, and figure that out, you know. He says, oh, I'm, I'm good now. I say, so how do, you, how do you do it now? He says, I just throw the ball. I say, what do you mean? He says, I just get up, I don't think, I throw it. I say, all right. Late teens, early 20s, I was thinking, uh, gee, you know, I'm kind of into this music thing, man. I really love playing music, and I'm not sure if I want to do the acting thing, you know. I remember having conversations with my dad about it and him saying, Jeff, don't be ridiculous. What's so wonderful about acting is that you can incorporate all of your interests of life into that profession. So, you know, you'll come, you'll have a chance to play a musician, you know, somewhere down the line. <laughs> and I'm glad I listened to him. But uh, all through high school, you know, I played uh, guitar and um, taught myself how to play, you know. Uh, they give you those that little graph there, it's just dots on where you put your fingers. You can teach yourself pretty well. That's what I did. And then uh, my brother, Bo, he was uh, doing a movie called John and Mary with Dustin Hoffman and Mia Farrow. And uh, Quincy Jones was doing the music for it. And Bo uh, pitched one of my tunes to Quincy and said, yeah, you want to check out my, uh, my little brother, you know. He's 16, but he's, he writes some pretty cool tunes, you know. So uh, that was my first recording with Quincy Jones at you know, about 16. And then um, the whole music thing, you know, it, it never really stops. It kind of moved on the back burner for a while. Yeah, and then Crazy Heart came around. I remember when I was first given the script, which was quite a few years ago, I originally turned it down because there was no music. The script was okay, but there was no, no music involved. And I thought, well, the... If you had crummy music to this thing, it's not going to be any good. So um, I'll pass. I ran into my good buddy T-Bone, Burnett, and he said to me, so what do you think about this Crazy Heart script? You know, I said, why do you ask? Are you interested? He says, yeah, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. So I said, oh, well, now this is even going to be tougher to turn down because <laughs> my good buddy, I know he's got the talent to bring this thing in. Now, do I have it, you know? I kept getting that image of that, the wide receiver, you know, going out for that long ball, you know, and just praying that you're going to be able to catch this wonderful pass, you know, that's right into your hands. But a, a great opportunity. So out of that, you know, there was an album for Crazy Heart came out, and uh, that wonderful song, uh, The Weary Kind, written by Ryan Bingham, had a great time doing that movie, so, so, so much music involved. And then after that, I figured, well, we're kind of on this music thing, and I called up T-Bone and said, hey, you want to, you know, kind of parlay that deal and just keep going? I got some tunes I'd love to realize with you. And he said, yeah, what you got? You know, so I put out an album called Jeff Bridges. But I must say, it's a little odd to be uh, realizing my teenage uh, music dream. I've got a band together here in Santa Barbara, The Abiders. You know, it's a Lebowski uh, reference, so that's what we are. And we just put out uh, a live album, and we tour. We just got back from Canada touring. 
At 65, it's so odd to be living your teenage dream, but what the hell, you know, never too old to dream, man. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 20 years ago, we got shook out of L.A. with that big Northridge earthquake. You know, being a California kid, I'm you know, familiar with earthquakes, but this was something different. We were living on the rim of Santa Monica Canyon. And we later saw a map of the different faults in the earthquake. And we had a fault like right around our house. We were, you know, surrounded by it. And that thing, uh, it, you know, started to, you know, shake. And then it just, you know, it got, you know, more and more and more intense. And uh, your mind tries to, you know, wrap around or try to figure out what it is. I, I didn't know if we were being invaded. First, I thought it was like bombs from some other country attacking us. Then I thought, no, this is out of space. This is like stronger than anything, any bomb or anything. And then I looked out the window and I see just, you know, the ground just like the ocean, you know, just flowing like, oh my God. And I sleep naked. So I'm now I'm running through the house with broken glass all over the floor, you know. I didn't know where the gas was. Sue knew where it was, my wife, being the, uh, courageous uh, champion of us all. And she says, I'll get it, you know. So she, I'm, I'm in the doorway with the girls, you know, and Sue's down in the basement turning off the gas, thankful that I married such a strong woman. Then the aftershock came, you know, another one. You say, this might be, this might be the end of this thing, you know. And then you say, well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to just go sleep out in the front lawn because our house, we couldn't, you know, our house was pretty trash. That was the last night we spent in our house. So we got some sleeping bags and just spent the night uh, out on the lawn thinking, you know, any moment it could just open up and swallow us. You know, we count on the ground, you know, walking and, you know, gravity and these kinds of things. We just take it totally for granted. And to have that just uh, tossed in the air and, and make, you know, everything make no sense, it can trip you pretty good. You know, you get your mind going, man. And then you wake up the next morning and you see guys <laughs> driving on their bikes and just denial is kind of a wonderful thing. You know, it can be, you know. Sometimes I think if, if there wasn't a certain amount of denial, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. One of my heroes in life is Buck Mr. Fuller. You know, he's probably most famous for the geodesic dome, but he, you know, a wonderful inventor, a wonderful thinker. On his gravestone, I printed the words, call me trim tab. The trim tab is the very small rudder that is attached to the huge rudder of these ocean-going tankers. The engineers found that it took too much energy to move this enormous ship with this big rudder. They found a very simple answer to that by having a little tiny rudder that moves the big rudder and then the big rudder moves the ship. And Bucky told us that this is how an individual works on society. My mom and dad were very much into giving and this idea that, you know, the family of man, 
and uh, we were encouraged not to do something like just make a, ge a gesture to uh, sort of scratch the guilt itch, you know, give 10 bucks and say, okay, I did my part, you know. We were encouraged rather to take a look inside and see what we might be willing to do that would kind of fit in with our daily lives. And I said, well, I thought, well, I'm, a, I'm an actor. I deal with the media all the time. I do stuff like I'm doing right now. So I got in cahoots with a wonderful organization called Share Our Strength and their No Kid Hungry campaign. It's all about ending childhood hunger in America. And uh, you know, if you're hungry, you're not going to be able to learn in school. And we're having wonderful success. Kids are getting better test scores. Their attendance is improving. And of course, uh, you know, they'll grow up to be a lot healthier adults because of that. We're all trim tabs. We're all connected to very powerful people, and uh, we affect uh, large groups of people that we may not even be aware of, but um, that's something I try to keep in mind. One idea, you hear all about the, the middle way, and when Buddha became enlightened and there are guys gathering around him, you know, saying, oh, he's an enlightened cat, he's going to tell us how to do this thing. And he says, you know, how do you become enlightened? And you know, Buddha says, well... It's all about attachment, desire, you know. Go out and, and try to not desire. So the guys go out and they're trying not to desire, but then they finally come upon this thought. So we're desiring not to desire. And they came back and told Buddha, they said, you know, we can't because we're desiring to not desire. And he says, oh, you kind of, that's kind of getting the idea. Just do the best you can. There's a word that I put on some of my scripts, aimless kind of conjuring up uh, for me to back off the results so much. You know, we have a, you know, an idea of, you know, how it's supposed to be and to kind of back off that, you know, a general direction. Yeah, that's, maybe that's right on cue. Let's dance with that thing. It's going to happen here and again in a second. Probably. Yeah, you see, oh, listen to that lovely horn. Now, why do we want to edit that out? See, we want to take that sound away. That's kind of a beautiful sound. Here come, listen, isn't that beautiful? But see, we want it clean. We want it perfect. So we take all of that shit out, you know. But why? I mean, we don't have to do that. You know, this idea of who we are and where we're going to abide, these are all just opinions, you know. And uh, this uh, land of non-abiding, this, um, this emptiness of, you know, not knowing, that's finally where we've shown up here. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when that train is going to come by or... When your mother's going to walk through the door with her hair shorn off, or, you know, what's going to happen? So we abide, man. And, uh, you know, another koan is, you know, how do you get off a you know, 100-foot pole? Interesting, you know. <laughs> Sit with that for a while. I was thinking about that the other day. And I thought, well, maybe you just dig. You just dig it. You know, there's that Zen story of, uh, you know, being chased by a tiger, and you come to a cliff and you guys say, ah, I've got to get off the cliff. I've got to get away from the tiger. You leap off the cliff. You grab onto this vine that's hanging off the cliff. And you look down and you see another tiger back there. He's waiting for you to fall. The tiger above, tiger below. And then you notice on the vine, just out of reach, are two little mice. And they're nibbling on your vine. <laughs> and you say, oh, it's going to end soon, you know. And you look over and you say, oh. Look at this, it's a beautiful strawberry. Oh, well, what else? I'm just going to eat that strawberry. There's nothing else to do, you know. I can sit here and be you know, scared to death, or I can just enjoy where I am. You know, what's, what's cooking on now? Mm. 
taste that thing. So dig, you know, I guess. I like that, though. I like that word. Sit here and enjoy where I am. I love that. Jeff's ability to be present is infectious. Jeff has continued his parents' legacy. He loves performing, whether it's in his dozens and dozens of movie roles or on tour with his band. Jeff finds happiness in doing his work, living his life, and not being concerned with how he'll be remembered. He understands there will always be ups and downs. Life has twists and turns, strikes and gutters, and it's really all about the journey. Like the dude, Jeff strives to simply abide. Jeff Bridges, for that, you are a master. My experience in life, it just, you know, it's the, going back to the dude again, you know, strikes and gutters, man, highs and lows, that's, that's it. You know, that's how life is. Even though we're so different, we're all related, we're all connected, we're all part of this, this human family. What I've noticed is that there's a lot of love going down. I feel it in myself, uh, and I feel it in the world. And there's a lot of, of pain and struggle, and that also has to do with love. I keep thinking about my, my uh, dad. I remember having a conversation with him. He was quite old. And I remember telling him, I said, Dad, you know, it's like I'm in, we're just in a, ra a relay race, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, you know, right running right behind you. You hand me that baton, I'm taking it, you know, carrying on your stuff. And so uh, I don't really think of me going anywhere, man. I think I'm just going to, you know, it's not like a legacy, something I'm leaving behind. It's something that, you know, just being a part of the love that's going down, supporting that, nurture that, and... Um, you know, I guess the legacy kind of takes care of itself. Legacy, you know, it's like a snake. You know, every once in a while, it just grows out of his skin, leaves it on the side of the road. Somebody can pick it up, say, oh, look at that, a beautiful belt or something. I guess that's kind of a legacy, you know, but I don't think too much about it. I'm the snake, kind of just grooving on, you know, and got a wonderful lady snake, made some baby snakes, you know. Yeah, I don't think about the legacy too much. I think that's going to take care of itself. I'm just, you know, trying to be uh, the best channel for love I can be now. And that's about it. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.